because I forgot to press record. Sorry, podcast. Um, Anyway, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. I want to see three things from this angle as we consider joy in humility. Joy, this theme that Paul keeps coming back to, uh, but here he's talking about humility. And three things that I want to see that Jesus' exaltation shows us about this joy and humility. One, that humility reigns. Two, that love reigns. And three... Jesus, Jesus Christ reigns. All right, so the first one is that humility reigns. We've said it multiple times, even as we've looked at this, the third week we've looked at it, we've said it multiple, multiple times. Humil- humility is hard for us. It does not come naturally to us. It is against our nature to be humble, to think of ourselves less and to think of others more. It's hard. Uh, and maybe we get, like, we understand, look, I understand that Jesus is humble. I understand that. He is so humble. But it's still hard. Well, how does humility reign in the heart and in the life of the believer, of the person that's been united to Christ. Well, I want you to think, this may be a weird illustration, but I want you to think about 1 Samuel 17. You don't have to turn there. Really long chapter. But it might be the most popular story in the Bible, I think. It's the story of David and Goliath. There's a lot going on in that chapter. I want you to think about it. Um, The Israelites, in, in 1 Samuel 17, we find the Israelites encamped. Uh, opposite the Philistines, and they're encamped for battle. It's the two armies. They're just they're there encamped, and they're facing each other. And at any moment, fighting could break out, but it's not. And every single day, a warrior, freakish giant named Goliath comes out into the middle and stands in the gap and challenges the whole camp of Israel, mocks their God, mocks them, and says, just send one guy out here to fight me. We'll fight. If he wins, y'all win. But if I win, we win. And he comes out every day to challenge him like that. And then, finally, David shows up. David's just a runt little teenager at this point in his life. Uh, But he shows up. He's bringing food to his brothers that are in the army. Uh, But he hears what's going on. He hears this guy mocking God and mocking Israel. And he takes offense. And so he wants to to do something about it. He wonders, why has nobody done it? Why is nobody doing anything? His own brother mocks him and, and actually uh, uh, rebukes him for talking. He says, shut up, little boy. You just want to see a fight. The problem is they're not fighting because they're scared. Then he goes to Saul, and Saul's like, ah, I can't let you go. But then finally Saul realizes that I'm not going, so I might as well send this boy. And so he sends David, and David goes out, right? And we know the story. David goes out, and he slings the stone, and he slays the giant. 
But I want to suggest to you something. I want to ask you a question. What is the climax of that story as you remember it? I would suggest to you that the climax of that story is not when the stone embeds itself in the skull of Goliath. It's not. I would suggest to you that the climax of that story is when the army of Israel looks at each other and all of a sudden, with loud cries and shouts, they just take off after the Philistines. They take off after the Philistines and they slay them all, right? Or capture them all. One or the other. And so the question at that point is, what changed? All of a sudden, this army that's been shivering, they've been cowards at the face of this one guy. All of a sudden, they are filled with this blazing confidence. And they go out and they conquer this army on the other side. And they're more than conquerors in the way that they they do it. What happened? What changed? I would suggest to you, it's when they saw David. Right? It's when they saw David. It's when they saw the true king. They didn't know that was who he was. But they saw the true king who went and fought in their place. It's when they saw the true, the true king who went into the valley, who stood in the gap, and did what not one of them would or could do. And he won. And they realized in an instant, he won. And you know what that means? We won. And the moment that clicks, they are completely changed. That's the climax of the story. And then there's this really awesome scene. I don't know if you remember it, but uh, David goes before Saul and he's holding the head of Goliath. I don't ever remember that from the story when I was a kid, but it's in there. But that's not the climax either and doesn't fit my point at all. But it changed them. His victory became their victory and it changed them. This is precisely what Jesus' exaltation The truth, the fact of history that Jesus was exalted. He was lifted and then enthroned at the right hand of God. The truth of Jesus' exaltation does this exact same thing for us. It tells us and it shows us. Not just that Jesus is some great example. It's not, hey, look how humble Jesus is. Now let's go out and try our best. No. What it shows us is that Jesus' humility accomplished something. It did something. And it will do something. It will produce something. And it's right there in verse 9. Therefore. 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 What is the therefore? Therefore, right? That's what good Bible classes teach. The whole previous part is how Jesus humbled himself. And because he humbled himself, he was exalted. He was exalted. Didn't count equality a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He was obedient even unto death. Therefore, God highly exalted him because he humbled himself. And so what we're being told there is that Jesus earned something. Now follow me here. Jesus earned something. He was rewarded for what he did. God himself rewarded his son for what he did. What did he get rewarded with? He secured an eternal righteousness. He secured an eternal uh, life. He secured an eternal glory. And we know this because God exalted him. We know this because God raised him up and then lifted him up out of the earth and seated him at his right hand in heaven. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus became a man. This is why Jesus did only what God wanted and what God told him to do. And because he was obedient, in humility, he was exalted. 
But here's the question, right? All those things that he secured, he already had them from eternity. So why did he do it? It's what we've been talking about, right? To secure it, not for himself. He already had it. To secure it for himself, for us. He did it for us. He secured it for us. He secured eternal righteousness, eternal life, eternal glory for us because we never could have gotten it ourselves. And because he's been exalted, we know that it's ours. Now, are you following me here? Do you see the David illustration? Because Jesus was exalted, the things that he was rewarded with, we know that those things are ours. Well, how does that work? Jesus was the one exalted. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. Did you hear that? Because of what Jesus did, because of the salvation that Jesus secured us, as surely as he has been raised from death to life, we live. And as surely as he has been exalted and enthroned in the heavens, you and I, if we are in Christ, that is true of us also. Not will be one day if you make it true of you, of us. But you got to see what that means, how this makes humility reign in the heart of a believer, right? Because to say that you believe in that, what Paul just said, he goes on, he says, raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved by, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one has anything to boast about in and of themselves. So do you see what that means? To say that you believe that, that you believe that gospel in that Jesus and what he did, means to say that you are admitting that you yourself cannot do it. Believing this gospel takes humility on the front end. It's part of the whole thing. That's how humility reigns. There's a guy named uh, Mark Sayers who wrote... A book called The Disappearing Church where he kind of addresses where our culture's at at this moment. And the way that he defines it, he says, we live in the culture of self. We know this. It's not hard to illustrate how we live in a culture of self, right? But he says this about believing the gospel in a culture of self. He says, to be shaped by grace in a culture of self means that the most countercultural act that one can commit is to break the culture of self's only taboo. See, culture of self, we can do whatever we want. But there's one taboo in the culture of self. And to be shaped by grace is to break that one taboo. Self-disobedience. Now, what is self-disobedience? He says, to acknowledge that authority and ability does not lie with us. That we ultimately have no authority to admit that we are broken. To abandon our rule of self and to collapse into his arms of grace. The very act of believing this gospel means that humility has begun to reign in your heart. That's why Paul says, again, Paul, remember Paul in Romans 1 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He wrote the whole letter to the Romans about the gospel. And it's like, well, if 
if you're going to write a whole letter about it, why do you need to tell us that you're not ashamed of it? You wouldn't say you're not ashamed of something unless people would think that you had reason to be ashamed of it. And in the culture of self, we have plenty of reasons. Because to be shaped by grace is to break our culture's one mantra, self-disobedience. So for the one who believes this, humility reigns. I can't think of myself as more significant than others. Because if I believe this, my entire life and identity is founded on the fact that Christ didn't consider himself more significant than me. When he had every right to. Humility reigns. The second thing, though, Jesus' exaltation tells us is that love reigns. Okay? Love reigns. We say humility reigns. We're talking about based on what Jesus did. He humbled himself. So humility reigns. And when we believe that, humility reigns in us as well. When we say love reigns, we're talking about why he did it. Why did he do it? He did it because he counted us more significant than himself. He counted himself more significant than uh, he, he counted us more significant than himself because he loved us. And again, this is far more than just an exemplary love. This isn't just a hey, look how much Jesus loved us. Let's try to do that. It's not the way the Bible talks. No, it's about how this love now reigns on a throne. See, what we're told is that love came down. That Jesus humbled himself. Love came down. But what we're now told is that love was exalted and love sits enthroned at the center of the universe. And when we are united to him by faith, love reigns. Is it not remarkable that the teachers of the law came to Jesus and asked him, Hey, they were trying to trick him, but it's a good question. What is the greatest commandment? If you're so smart, if you know everything, which all these people think you do, they were jealous. What is the greatest commandment then, Jesus? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it. They didn't ask him for two, but he offered it. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why, Jesus? Because love reigns. Ricky Jones, my former campus minister, he, he, he finds it important to note in only the way he can. You know, Jesus didn't just fly home. You know, you think about the ascension in Acts chapter 1. Like, Jesus didn't, after 40 days, didn't just be like, all right, guys, I'm going back to heaven. And then he, like, flew away. He didn't do that. I don't know if he would have done this, but. Um, no. He was lifted up into heaven. He was lifted up. Someone else did it. God lifted him up. Now, up is not, it's not necessarily to say, well, that's where heaven is right beyond the clouds. No, it's, it's a directional, it's, it's a symbolism, a direction. He was lifted up. He was put above everything. He was enthroned over all things. He took his rightful place as the son of God at God's right hand. He was raised from the dead. Then he was lifted up. Now, follow the, follow the flow here. Jesus came into this world and became a man. Jesus died a man. Jesus was resurrected a man. Jesus ascended as a man. Jesus was exalted and enthroned at the right hand of God the Father in heaven as a glorified man. Not a disembodied spirit. A man. Now, 
That may not, maybe that doesn't, maybe that seems obvious to you. Why is this so important that Jesus is still a man in glory? Because it proves to us that the love that came down is exalted, is enthroned. There's at least a couple of things that we can think about. Why is it so important to think about that Jesus is still a man in glory? Well, the first one is this. It's the same, and they kind of parallel to him coming down in the first place. Firstly, we know that we can understand God. We know that we can know God. Because Jesus, our Savior, our mediator, the one who took on flesh to become like us, because he is God and now he sits at God's right hand, we know that we have access to that God and we can know that God and we can understand that God and we can grow in relationship with that God. All these things. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of his glory. Jesus, the word that was uh, in the beginning with God and was God. God's perfect self-expression to us. So we know that we can know him. It's not a question. It's not an if. Because love reigns. This love that came down to us reigns. And we can know the one that we love. Look, I don't know a ton about philosophy. I I tried to take one philosophy class in college and dropped out uh, halfway through the first class. um, (laughs) Because it hurt my head. But uh, at least one of the things I I feel like I've heard some people maybe say about philosophy... um, I'm instilling a lot of confidence in you right now about what I'm about to say. But one of, the, one, of the, one of the questions that philosophy has taken up over the centuries is, how do we know if we truly know something? The ultimate truth behind something. One example, one of my seminary professors, as he went on like a 30-minute rabbit trail and stared at a tree as he said this, is like, how do I know a tree is a tree? Again, this is why I dropped out of philosophy. Um, how do I know what treeness is? It just sounds absurd, doesn't it? How do I know what treeness is? Is it what I can see? Is it what I observe? Is it what I feel when I touch it or when I examine it? What is treeness? Or is there a treeness that is more ultimate than the things I necessarily feel or sense about a tree? So that's just a simple explanation. You see how you can take that to an infinite amount of things and confuse yourself and make your head hurt. But one of the agreements of philosophy um, over the centuries had been or has been That you can only truly know something that's below you. This kind of makes sense, right? You think about an analogy of like trying to explain something to a child. Um, And children just, you know, there's some things that no matter how you try to get on their level, they're just not fully going to understand what you're talking about. And so that kind of makes sense that you can't really know, you can only truly know things that are below you. But what that did is that it led many people to try to reconcile their Christianity with this belief. And say, well, then I guess we can't truly know God, but we just need to look for the ways that we can kind of know Him. So what I want you to see here on this end is that Paul here and the Bible everywhere else would say, no, that's not right. We absolutely can know Him. Why? Because He's us. He is us. He became like us and He still is us. Now, I haven't, I, haven't been, I haven't watched This Is Us, but everybody's told me I should. Uh, and I know it's a craze. But I, I happened to Google just like, what do people love about this show? And I just happened to stumble on this random blog by a lady named Christine Burke. And this is what she said, uh, to put it in a nutshell. The appeal of This Is Us is layered and multifaceted. You have nostalgic flashbacks coupled with flawed characters. 
You have glimpses into your own family drama and the realization that no family is perfect. There's laughter. There are tears. And as soon as an episode ends, you can't help but want more. In other words, what I took from that and what other things she said was people love the show because they watch it. And you know what they think and feel? This is us. This is us, right? Double meaning. woo I get it. Now you watch it. The story makes sense as you watch it in the show because so many people feel like it's representative of them. And so it is. Get that. So it is with Him. With Him, perfect and holy and righteous and enthroned in heaven. We get to look at the King of the universe, by whom, through whom, for whom, to whom, all things exist and were created. And we get to say, that's us. It doesn't make sense. I don't know how it is, but it is. It's us. And so we can know him and we can love him because he's us and he made himself us. But the second part of that is that we understand him, but the second part is that he understands us. Right? He knows us. He knows how we feel. He knows how to heal us. He knows what's wrong with us and he knows how to do something about it. This may be a weird illustration, but it just struck me today. Uh, If you're not up on current events, a woman sat in front of a Senate committee uh, today to lay out her allegations against a Supreme Court nominee. Now, let me ask you to please put your politics down for just a second. And there's only one thing that I really can keep going back to in the events of the story, and especially today, whether true or false or whatever. There's one glaring fact about it. There are thousands of women today that said to themselves, hopefully to somebody else, I know exactly what she feels like. That's heartbreaking, right? I sure don't. I don't know what it feels like. This is us. We can know him, and he knows us to every single thought, desire, experience in our life. He says, me too. He does. And he's enthroned at the center of the universe. The author of Hebrews takes it, says it like this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It was C.S. Lewis that said that friendship is born the moment when, two people, when, when one person looks at another and says, Wait, you too? I thought I was the only one. And that's so true. Think about the real friendships that you have. The real ones that you have. Is there not at least some foundation in the sense that you view them as a true friend because they get you on some level? 
This Jesus at every moment, at every step says, me too. Because the love that came down was exalted. And sits enthroned right now. At the center of all things. Humility reigns. Love reigns. Finally here, Jesus reigns. Sounds redundant, but let's just say it and think about it and let it soak in. Jesus reigns. He is reigning. He is ruling. All authority in heaven and on earth has been committed to him. He has it. Because we look at these things, love and humility, and they're good things, and we want them. And you know, it's all well and good, but... And my answer to that, the only answer can be, Jesus reigns. Humility reigns, love reigns, grace reigns, justice reigns, because Jesus reigns. That's why. That's how. How do we know? Because he reigns. So here's the question as we close. I know the Bible says that. I think I even know it's true. Why is it so hard to believe or to feel? At least a couple of things. Look at verse 9. Therefore he highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The first thing that we do need to be honest about. If we have problems, if we struggle sometimes with really believing or seeing or feeling this. is because usually in our lives, functionally, we have something else that's higher. We do. That's what we usually do. We usually enthrone something else. We put something else higher on the list. You could put something you worship higher on the list. You worship success, right? You want to be successful. You want to get ahead in this world for whatever reason, maybe even noble reasons. But you will give your time, you will give your gifts, you will give your energy spent towards getting ahead. Sometimes, no matter the cost. No matter the relational cost, no matter the physical cost or the emotional cost. You worship success. Sometimes it's comfort. Sometimes what's functionally higher on my list is that I just need everything to go smoothly. I need things to be easy. I need things to be comfortable. You could put things higher on your list, not that you worship, but that you fear. Failure. Your dogged pursuit of success could be because you are so frightened of failure. And even the thought of it physically gives you anxiety. Shame could be the reason that you let yourself go just from time to time, right? Or why you shut yourself off from other people that really do want to get to know you. Because regardless of any of it, you feel this deep core sense of shame. And you don't want anybody to know about it. Diagnostic to know what's on our list is what makes, what makes you feel like your kingdom has been lost? You ever thought about that? What happens in life that makes you feel like you've lost the kingdom? What is it that rattles you? What is it that stresses you out? What is it that you cannot help but give your time to? What are those things that you will not miss? Nothing will get you out of those things. You will be there. What kingdom are you functionally trying to spread? I'll just be honest, this is a trivial example. 
But you know, football is a great pastime. It is a terrible king. It's a tyrannical king, right? Maybe not for Bama fans. But I actually thought about this. You should have been in the Bama section like for some reason I was last year during the game while we were beating them. They, you would have thought Bama was the most uh, unfortunate team that has ever existed given what I was hearing around me. It's a great pass down. It's a terrible king. Jesus has been highly exalted. This is a present reality. And so what we're being told is to the degree that you bow to this king, there is your everlasting joy. To the degree that you bow to this king, there is your joy. To the degree that you bow to any other king, there is only paranoia. To the degree that you bow to this king and live for his kingdom, you have a glorious hope that is imperishable and undefiled waiting in heaven for you. You have an unspeakable joy. You have a peace that surpasses understanding that Paul will tell us later in Philippians. To the degree that you live for your own kingdom, you have anxiety. You have that constant drive to prove yourself. You have arrogant pride when you do well, but you have self-pity and despair when things aren't going so well. What is your king? Lastly, you want to know why this is hard for us. Jesus is exaltation. Jesus is exalted. Jesus is king. Jesus is reigning. But why is it hard? Because we say, I want to believe it. I want to live it. I want to live in it. But really, what's the difference? It's not doing anything. Again, you look at... I really want to say a bad word. The circus today. And we look at stuff like that and we're like, what's the point even? Right? And you know what our biggest problem with Jesus as King is? We want Jesus the conqueror. This is what everybody wanted of him from the day he began his public ministry. And he has disappointed every single person that has wanted that for the last 2,000 years. Did you know that? We want Jesus the conqueror. We want him to just come and squash everything to all of those things be damned. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because humility reigns and love reigns. Have you ever thought Jesus doesn't want to conquer? He doesn't want to conquer his enemies. He will one day come back. We're told right here that one day he will return and he will conquer all of his and our enemies. He will. But have you ever thought about the fact that because of who he is and what he is and what he's done, he doesn't want to conquer anyone. He wants to convert them. And what if the fact that every single day that we have had since the day that he left was another opportunity for another person, no matter who they are, to know in their hearts that humility reigns and love reigns? We're not patient enough for that, are we? Two examples to close with. For example, John Newton. You see, Jesus... A couple hundred years ago, looked down on a slave trader, an English slave trader. Made his, all his wealth, his career, in being someone who went to Africa and put people on ships to bring them to the UK and to America. Jesus didn't kill him to make an example. 
Jesus changed his heart. And by a slave trader, the world has learned to sing amazing grace. I'm continually amazed by uh, a man named John Perkins. John Perkins is a civil rights leader. He's a black man that grew up in Jim Crow, Mississippi. Still alive. And there's a lot to his story, but just a little bit of it is that at 16... He watched his brother bleed to death on a hospital gurney because no one would treat him. His brother was 25, had been home from World War II for six months, was in the black line at a movie. The crowd wouldn't get quiet quick enough, and so a policeman clubbed him. And when he reached up to grab the club, the policeman shot him twice in the stomach. Nobody knows the policeman's name. Nothing was ever done about it. John tells about his story. He dealt with a lot of anger, and his parents actually sent him to California because he was so angry, and they feared that something would happen to him because of his anger. But later in life, he was converted. And after his conversion, he devoted himself to civil rights and justice and love for all people, as he would say in all of his his writings. Uh, In fact, in 1970, he was beaten in a Brandon, Mississippi jail for doing just that. So what what kind of things would you expect a man like that to write? He did have a he did a, he had a book titled "Let Justice Roll Down Like Waters" after that verse in Amos, I think it is. You would you would expect maybe some fire and brimstone justice to come out of that man. One of the last books that he's written is called "Dream with Me." You want to know what John Perkins wants us to dream with him about? All of us. This is what he says. As I think about what I want to say to people at this point in my life, it's all about love. As I look back over my personal journey, the highs, the lows, and everything in between, it's all about love. Love is the first, the middle, and the final fight. We live in a broken world. How should we react? Only love can touch us at the point of our pain and begin to heal us and make us whole. Love. No matter where I start, I always end up here. Not what I would have expected. Just knowing the story. Right? Here's the thing. What makes that more than just the sentiment of a sweet old man? Seriously. I think he would agree that it's because the one who loved us with an everlasting love brought that love down, emptied himself and humbled himself. God highly exalted him. And now he rules and reigns in the same way that he came down in love. And so that's my invitation to unite is just to consider who's your king? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray for the grace and the power of your spirit to be able to bow and to confess that you are Lord and Lord of all. 
And Father, would this be evident in us as you told us it should be to the world, that they would know it by our love. We pray these things to your glory. Amen.